This podcast contains material that some listeners may find distressing. Content includes explicit language and themes related to workplace bullying, harassment, sexual harassment, intimidation, stalking, physical and sexual violence, discussions relating to self-harm and suicidality, disordered eating, other mental health issues, sexism, racism, and homophobia. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Behind Blue Doors, a podcast where women and allies have the right to speak their truth and share their stories. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to Behind Blue Doors. This is uh, Lee. I'll be hosting today with Susan. Hi, Susan. Uh, hello. And our guest today is Alex Vitali, Dr. Alex Vitali. He's a professor of sociology and a coordinator of policing and social justice out of uh, Brooklyn College. He's also a visiting professor at London South Bank University and most known for He's the author of End of Policing. That came out in 2017. And a new edition will be coming out later this month. The book is also available on versobooks.com, V-E-R-S-O books.com. Hi. Hi, Lee. Hi, Susan. Should we call you Dr. Vitale? No, Alex is fine. Alex is fine. Okay, great. Thanks for coming on today and speaking with us. I know you've had... You've done a lot of podcasts in the past uh, and talked about your book. I've read some controversial things where people have responded and thought differently of your book. Surprisingly few of those. I expected a lot more of that, actually. (laughs) Yeah, I did not find very much there. I think there was one on Vox that I could find, V-O-X, whatever platform that is. And really, they didn't disagree with anything that you wrote about. Uh, I think the only concern that I had seen was not concerned. The point that they bring up is, well, it doesn't address violent crime. And we can get into that after. Yeah, I mean, that edition does talk about violent crime, and they just sort of ignored it. But then in the new edition, I have an entire section directly, you know, responding to that concern. Excellent. So I'd like to hear first how you end up in your career writing about a book called End of Policing. (laughs) (laughs) So so I've been working on policing issues for 30 years now in a variety of capacities, both in public policy as a police researcher. Uh, I've spent time on patrol with police around the world, consulted police departments around the world, uh, written in the big policing journals. And, you know, I'm very up on the policing literature. And my concern was that, especially like following Ferguson, there was all this talk about police reform. President Obama had this task force on 21st century policing here in the States that had all these, what we often refer to as procedural justice-oriented reforms. And my reading of the literature is that this stuff is, doesn't work, that, it, that it's, it's kind of, a lot of it's just ridiculous. This idea that we're going to fix the problems with policing by having a bunch of p- professional police officers sit down with a few young people in a community for an afternoon and and talk about the history of slavery and now that's going to fix the the racial racially disparate outcomes in policing or that implicit bias training is going to fix policing i mean this is a joke 
Police officers know it's a joke. Researchers know it's a joke. Only politicians <laughs> think that this is a viable strategy. I just wanted to, just because not all viewers or listeners, I should say, will be familiar with the Ferguson case. So can you talk a little bit about what that was? Sure. So the Ferguson case was the the police killing of Mike Brown, who was an unarmed black man who was killed in the a suburb of St. Louis under questionable circumstances. And his body was, you know, left uncovered in the street all afternoon for everyone in the community to see that the family was brushed off. So there were this additional kind of mishandlings of the case. And at the same time, roughly, you know, you have the police killing of Eric Garner in New York City, the whole I can't breathe, the police killing of 12-year-old Tamir Rice in a park in Ohio, Uh, the killing of Freddie Gray in the back of a police van in Baltimore. And so, you know, this contributed to a a period of of unrest as well as soul searching and, frankly, attempts to re-legitimate policing through a bunch of superficial and largely pointless reforms. And so I thought it was really important as someone who knew this literature and knew policing to point out the pointlessness of this and to begin to have, I think, a more frank and realistic conversation about what it would take to reduce the harms of policing on the communities that are most heavily policed. Yeah, I, I agree. It took me a long time to agree because I was a police officer, you know, because I'm a police officer and because I'm in that culture, I fed into it. And you think that you have all the best training. And, but then once you become yourself a victim of the system and you realize how they actually go about doing things, it's just so ass backwards. Excuse my language, but really. Well, and I think too, you talk about once you become a victim. And I don't think that we often view police officers as victims. So I just think you know, if you've got police officers that are from marginalized groups as well, and they can't get justice for themselves, what is happening with the public? And we see it play out day in and day out with these different marginalized groups. So with the Black community, with the Asian community, with um, women, you know, with, with individuals experiencing poverty, all that kind of thing. So I think that's the idea that all these superficial mechanisms are put into place that really don't work. And the need for frank conversations is is a big piece of it. You know, there's a lot of stuff that goes on in policing that is not good for police officers as human beings. Now, there's there's been some attention in recent years to questions about stress and workplace trauma. And, you know, that's that's appropriate. But also, why are we sending police into situations that result in harm to them when we could be handling those things in other ways. I was just having a conversation with some folks yesterday about traffic stops. Traffic stops are one of the most dangerous things for police officers. Significant numbers of deaths and injuries result from police traffic stops, and most of them are completely pointless. They do nothing to improve traffic safety. Most of them are pretextual stops as part of a completely pointless war on drugs. 
And if we really cared about the well-being of the men and women in the police services, we would get them out of the traffic enforcement business. What I found, at least in my service, is the, the it's the city. <laughs> it's our city that wants because they get the money. It's the quotas, right? It's the quotas, right? So you, um, we don't have quotas now, but certainly when I was a young officer, when they did, it was, you have to justify your time on what you're doing out there on the beat. So, you know, you would have to hand in a stat sheet at the end of the month and, you know, put in how many traffic stops you had, how many impaired, how many drug arrests, how many, they don't do that now because they, I guess they've recognized it shouldn't be based on that. But certainly traffic blitzes and things like that, it's all for the city to make money. Well, even when you don't have a formal quota system, which we know many places have had, officers are expected to show productivity. And how is productivity measured? Paperwork. And what's the easiest way of generating paperwork? You know, traffic stops, expired registration, stuff like that. So you know, and stop and searches and and other kinds of low-level enforcement activity. And so all of this is driving encounters between police and the public that overwhelmingly don't serve a legitimate public safety purpose. Yeah, I agree. Because to me, the only reason we do it is to generate money. Like, so how does that, how do they generate that money for the city? Like, if that's how they have it set up right now, What could it look like differently? Right. So think about it this way. If you had to imagine the most dangerous and inefficient way to collect taxes, it would be to have police officers randomly pulling over people in their automobiles at all hours of the day and night with no idea what's going on in that automobile. So if you need to generate revenue, you should go where the actual money is and have a rational system of taxation. But our elected officials want to campaign on how they cut taxes. And so then when there's no money, they use fines and fees to make up the difference. And then police officers are placed in the position of being tax collectors under the most adverse situation imaginable. And this is just completely ridiculous. So We need a real rethink on how property taxes are structured and business taxes and things like this. This was one of the main findings of the U.S. Justice Department when they looked at the situation at Ferguson, which was these little suburban towns are getting 20, 30 percent of their revenues on fines and fees related to traffic enforcement and other low level police enforcement behavior. And it's just outrageous. And that burden falls heavily disproportionately on the poorest and most vulnerable people in the community. I think it's huge uh, that, you know, you've pointed out how these larger systems, so governmental systems, have the ability to influence the experience of individuals and they go through the police to do it. And it's all around making money. It's all about money and not about what's good for communities and seeing things in a different way that, you know, maybe it would be better to invest your time and energy into building relationships with the community, spending time in the communities that you work as officers, get to know the people you're working with at a human level, invest in social programs where individuals don't have to go out and commit crime or, 
know, there's so many different ways that we can go about doing things. Well, and I'm sure, as you know, right, the, the majority of the time you're interacting with people, it's not because they've committed a crime. That most policing is not really that directly tied to law enforcement in a strict sense. It's, it's problem management. It's order maintenance. I felt like I was a conflict negotiator. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you go in, you, you, um, especially more for women, there's a lot more compassion and empathy that are placed with people you're dealing with and you're trying to fix a bad situation uh, and then you leave and you're gone and then you're into the next one, next conflict, next conflict. Well, and you don't really conflict. fix it, right? You manage it. Yes, yes, you're right. Because they don't actually give you as a police officer any tools that could actually fix a problem. What they give you are tools to manage the problem from one day to the next. Move along. Going to do a custodial arrest and we're going to hold you overnight and then, you know, you'll be bailed out and back on the streets. Or we're going to put you in the system for longer. Or we're going to threaten to use violence against you to get you to stop doing something, right? And it's just so that then you can move on to the next call. Yeah. Police don't have access to community-based mental health services, medically-based drug treatment, employment schemes for young people, you know, improved educational opportunities, the kinds of things that uh, stable housing, the kinds of things that would actually help fix people's problems. Right. One of the things you said that I, I have to go back to because it's so different in Canada from the States. So when we talk about traffic stops in Canada, we, we, we don't have the gun laws that you have. Uh, ours are much stricter. There's a, a lot less guns on the street. So I've often thought to myself, I was always pretty comfortable doing traffic stops. But when I thought about, if I knew that every car I was pulling over probably has a gun in the car, I, I can't even imagine the level of anxiety and stress I would feel every time doing a traffic stop. Like that would stress me out. And even if you don't think you're stressed out, it does. You're, you know, you're, it's the word I'm looking for, like the anxiety and the, and they've proven in the brain that you... Automatic response. Yeah. yeah. And um, so I've often thought when I've listened uh, and seen things that have happened in the States, I'm like, wow, like the, like, I feel like they're a lot of the response by the police and the violence, it's, they're in this complete uh, state in their brain that is unhealthy, making bad decisions, unable to make decisions because they're in this heightened state constantly of uh, flight, flee, freeze. Um, and I just, I've always been thankful that we didn't have that here in Canada because when I've tried to imagine it, like, you know, when I'm, when I'm pulling over a car at three in the morning, I don't feel unsafe all the time. And I just wonder what it would be like with having to always worry that everyone is carrying. I just don't have that experience. Yeah. So we, I mean, we, ha the problem here is exacerbated by the fact that we've seen this shift in training over the last generation or so towards a kind of, you know, exaggerated threat awareness. So we've learned a lot about these training programs where officers are shown videos of seemingly innocuous traffic stops where then quickly somebody pulls out a gun and shoots the officer. And this is drummed into them in the training that every encounter 
could be your last and you better be ready, you know, to act in a split second. When in fact, the risks of the encounters is not nearly that great. It is, there is a real risk, as I mentioned before. But this has led to some obvious tragic outcomes of, of people being unnecessarily shot and killed in, by mistake by police officers. I will just say on the Canadian case, I mean, it's wonderful that there's, there's dramatically fewer guns in circulation and that this is less of a concern for officers. But of course, officers are injured and killed in Canada in traffic stops because they get hit on the roadside. So even in Canada, this is still one of the more dangerous activities that officers engage in. Absolutely. I mean, my my spouse, uh, when he was an officer, he was in the traffic unit for nine years and someone on his team was was hit. And, you know, you watch the video and he thankfully survived and suffered minor injuries. But yeah, absolutely. I think too, even with less guns on the street, you know, who are you typically pulling over at three, four o'clock in the morning? <laughs> It's not usually, um, you know, it, soccer moms on yeah, their way. Right. To pick so the kids up. Yeah. I, uh, I know as a spouse, I was always awake around the time with like clockwork. I would wake up around the time that he was supposed to get home. And I think maybe that's a spouse in general, but just waiting just to make sure because I would, I would be wondering, okay, so he should be home soon. I'm listening. Right. So even though there's less like less guns because we have more strict laws that the danger i think is still there and much like you were talking about alex of you know this driving and that you have to be prepared i think it's a good point like officers do have to be prepared because you really just never know so with end of policing means so it it means a few things one way to think about it is like means and ends so i was trying to evoke this idea like what is the purpose of policing? Like really, what is it that is so essential that it needs to be done by policing? But the other was to obviously evoke a whole set of what we often refer to as kind of abolitionist discourses. And maybe I'll just say a little bit about what I mean by that, right? I think there's this tendency to imagine that uh, when we hear the word abolish, that tomorrow someone's going to find some magical switch and, and poof, you know, all police will disappear and everybody's on their own. But there is no such switch, right? There's no place that's getting ready to eliminate all their police overnight. Abolition is about a process of trying to figure out what we could do other than policing to address real problems. So it's actually a positive vision. It's not primarily a negative vision. It's like, we got a lot of police, but we still have a lot of problems. Maybe we could do something better. And policing, of course, produces its own problems. Yeah, and I think the only people that would feel that this is not a positive and is a negative are the police and the leadership in policing who want to keep the narrative and keep their hands in all the politicians' pockets and they all... You know, well, the problem runs deeper than that. If it were just, if it were just the police leadership and the police associations, I almost think that the politics of that we could manage. But the reality is, it's a bigger political problem. So we were talking before about like the way in which local officials are using police as tax collectors, but they're also using police 
to manage all kinds of social problems that they themselves are in large part responsible for and don't want to address in other ways. So in in the States, we systematically defunded mental health services, closed down the state hospitals and did not replace them with community-based services, just left people on the streets and then gave tax breaks to the rich. And when homelessness and mental health crises becomes this huge problem, we're told it's a crime problem to be handled by police. It's all by design. I, I, this resonates so much when I think about just kind of bringing it to um, a can- Canadian perspectives when we have, you know, conservatives versus the NDP, uh, New Democratic Party, right? Who, who would be more for investing in those social services to help these big problems that are not easily solved versus conservatives who would want to you know, they do everything. They, it's all about capitalism, but then also I think ties in more more intricately with kind of that ideology that it's every man for themselves. So there's this line between money making and then the individual should be able to care for themselves. And, you know, it's their problem, not a social problem. I mean, liberals are not immune from this problem either. This is a bipartisan, certainly in the States, this is a bipartisan problem. Policing in the U.S. is a very local matter. Most of our big cities are run by Democratic mayors, and they have engaged in exactly this same kind of politics of embracing austerity while subsidizing already successful economic sectors as part of some kind of race to the bottom competition for capital, and then papering over the social consequences of that system with intensive and invasive policing because it's cheaper and less ideologically problem problematic than actually like embracing some redistributive politics. Alex, in regards to women, in your research, did you come across anything that you that was different between police women and police men? There's been a lot of talk about diversifying police in response to the crises of the last few years. And we got a lot of evidence that shows that racial and ethnic diversity doesn't really make much difference. But hiring female officers has actually been shown in the literature to to be measurably better in certain metrics, you know, lower levels of use of force, uh, less likely to make arrests in, in particular situations. And as you mentioned before, often better at kind of conflict management out on the streets and, and you know, managing problems with, with less escalation and, and whatnot. So that's pretty well established. I just think there are limits to it. You know, in a way, it just shows how bad maybe some men are at what they're trying to do out there. Uh, but I still think there are limits because, first of all, we, we shouldn't measure the harms of policing only in the occasional outrageous high-profile killing. You know, there are many more everyday harms to policing, like a lot of stuff around traffic stops that don't necessarily result in some serious injury, but place an extra burden on certain communities that are already in distress. Agreed. For no, for no good reason. And so when the 
political officials tell the police officials, you know, we want that park cleared out, or we want this traffic problem abated, or we want, you know, this gang to be taken down. Well, officers are going to do that. And Female officers will maybe, uh, some of them will attempt a more nuanced way of achieving that objective. But when push comes to shove, which it literally does, then force is going to get used and arrests are going to be made and threats are going to be mobilized and all the rest. And so we, we have to ask these bigger questions about what are we using the police services for? You know, we've got this war on drugs in the United States in a milder form in Canada, thankfully, but still a totally procedurally proper, non-violent, non-racist, low-level drug arrest is still deeply unjust and is potentially going to ruin some young person's life for no good reason. And the fact that, you know, a female officer accomplishes that arrest with less use of force, you know, that's great, but it doesn't obviate the harms of the arrest. Agreed. I'm wondering um, if you are familiar, like, have you listened to any of our previous podcast episodes? Or are you familiar with kind of the the mission behind the Behind Blue Doors podcast? A, a little bit. I know that, you know, you're very concerned about the ways in which the culture of policing is suffused with a lot of kind of patriarchal and misogynist uh, worldviews. And this is, of course, a a widespread problem within policing uh, around the world. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So there's so many different layers to the issues here. And so, I mean, I suppose from the perspective of a former woman in policing, meeting with all sorts of women now around the world who are in policing or have been in policing, I, I have trouble wrapping my head around, you know, these this masculine culture, which really, for a lot of women, they they aren't necessarily wanted in policing. And so they also experience harms um, at the hands of their colleagues. And then if they try to fight that system, they become a target. And so I guess then that that also bleeds into the community too of, okay, so if male officers are treating their female officers this way or marginalized officers belonging to you know, a racialized group or um, a gender diverse group, what are they then doing to community members? So it's very complex. I mean, you're absolutely right that these things are connected. And I think we have to ask some tough questions here about what we mean about the culture of policing. So I've had many conversations with police officers around the world since the book came out who are trying to figure out how to change the culture of policing, whether they're officers of color or women They're like, we went into the police service thinking we could help change the institution for the better. We experienced bad policing or we we know there's bad policing, but, you know, we drank the Kool-Aid. We thought our contribution could make some difference. And universally, what I hear is that it didn't. And so what I my view is there's no real changing the culture of policing without radically rethinking the mission. And there's a reason for this, right? The, the institution of policing functionally in society rests on a central premise, which is that 
the way we solve our problems as a society are through threats and coercion, the mobilization of violence. You know, police are violence workers. Ultimately, that's what distinguishes them from other government interventions. And as such, it comports with these broader, frankly, authoritarian ideological strands that are incredibly patriarchal and white supremacist. So if we look at like the institutional support for policing in society, it it comes from sectors that typically share these authoritarian and patriarchal worldviews. And of course, people are drawn to policing as an as a career to some extent because of those homologies, those overlapping worldviews. And then officers who come in with a different perspective, that they imagine that policing could be a helping profession if just run differently, find themselves deeply disappointed and embittered by the experience. Because I would argue, ultimately, they have misunderstood the nature of the institution that they have joined, that that institution is functioning exactly as it was intended to. And their attempts to change it based on a kind of liberal ideology is not realistic. And not accepted. It is not rational. And of course, it's the reason it's not accepted is not just because there are a few cowboys running the police service. It's because the whole purpose of the institution is embedded in these ideas, which is not to say there aren't more enlightened people sprinkled about these bureaucracies, and it certainly doesn't mean that they're not able to talk about these aspirations of a liberal, more progressive form of policing, but that just has almost nothing to do with reality. That Those are PR talking points that are mobilized to generate public support for policing. And I think that's an excellent point. So for those of us who join thinking that, you know, we're going to make change and this is going to be positive, it's those messages that we are hearing saying, you know, this, you know, the public is good or the police are, they're great. They're here to support their communities and provide safety. And, you know, there's a very different narrative that's created for the public versus what actually occurs. And what I've heard numerous, not only women, but men officers say, you know, it's like an institutional betrayal when they come in and they have this idea that police are good and they're going to, they're going to, you know, help to make positive change. And then they find out, no, wait, we're just all supposed to be robots and do the same thing. And it's very different than, like you said, what we had envisioned going in. You got to clear that homeless encampment out. And if, People won't go nicely, then you're going to make them. And even if, even if it's not lawful, even if it's not lawful. And then if you complain that this seems unjust, then you've marked yourself as someone who doesn't understand what this job really is. Yeah, absolutely. I guess I want to ask, with, with reform or completely dismantling the police, what do you envision? Rather than a police force, what is this? system or or are we able to somehow repair the system that's in place by putting in new systems? Like what are your solutions on what we do here? My view is we need to replace policing functions 
with better alternatives in as many ways as we can credibly do that. And we start with the obvious stuff and we work from there. And it, it turns out we have credible alternatives for a massive amount of what police do. We need to get them out of the drug business, out of the sex work business. We need to get them out of our schools. We need to get them out of mental health response. We need to get them out of managing homelessness. We need to shut down this kind of war on gangs attitude and have real services for young people and empower communities to mobilize resources to to help kids in crisis rather than criminalizing them. And if you look right concretely at what police officers actually do all day, every day, they're, they're not chasing bank robbers and they're not finding serial killers hidden in the bushes somewhere, right? They're managing the lives of the poorest and most marginal people in our communities in ways that never really help those people. And so let's just get them out of doing that and then... If we're concerned about armed robberies and rapists and serial killers, well, well, let's work on that. Right. Let's figure out what only police can do, and then let's figure out what else we could do instead of policing that might work better and not come with all the collateral consequences that are inherent to policing. I remember when I was, before I became a police officer and I had done my undergrad in in, uh, criminology and sociology and philosophy, and you know, I remember coming out of there and so open to the world and what the world had to offer and understanding crime and how these marginalized groups are marginalized because of what ultimately colonialism and patriarchy has um, created and, and pushed them into this uh, lower class system where crime is higher because of all of these different, you know, Let's let's say the youth. Well, they want to have all the nice things that all these other kids have. And so what do they have to do to get it, right? And I found once I started policing and I, I saw more of this anger towards these groups, this n- no empathy, care, compassion for understanding why these groups are in the situation that they're in and taking responsibility that's actually we did this to them over time was very frustrating for me with other officers. You know, oh, Lee, you're, you're so liberal. You're so, you know, because most of the officers that I know, and it was sort of said to me on parade numerous times, like when, the, when we had voting coming up, well, you got to vote conservative. You got to vote conservative because conservatives are for the police. And I'm like, well, like, okay, I'm fiscally conservative, but liberally, like, no, I... I you know, socially, I, I'm a liberal. Like, I, I don't like that what's happening here. So I found a huge disparity there. But I was young. And for sure, my morals and values over time in what I like to call the cult um, or the biggest organized crime group in the world eroded that over time. And you you start to, in order to fit in, because that's another thing too in the police culture, you're a rat, if you say anything or have different views. So then you become afraid to speak out. You become afraid to speak up. You know, I've, I've spoken in the podcast uh, on my own episode and talked about the shame that I hold for things I allowed to happen in front of me, things I heard and saw, you know, things I myself said and did. I, I hold a lot of shame for that. I'm glad I've removed myself from that now and recognize 
the damage that it did to me as my soul and spirit as a person. Yeah, but that that is the culture of policing, right? That and that can't be fixed with with training or changes to hiring practices, right? When you put human beings into the role that police are in, it is going to produce an insular culture, a defensive culture that is resistant to change, resistant to outside scrutiny, resistant to criticism. That is, and we see this in the military in the same way, right? When you put violence workers into a situation and you tell them they're the solution to all our problems, these cultural problems will emerge. And you fix those problems by whatever means necessary, which usually involves force, right? Exactly, exactly. And that's the whole thing about, you know, the, the culture of violence workers looks remarkably similar wherever we look at it. I've never heard that term violence workers and it's really spinning in my head right now. I'm like, oh my God, is that what I was? That's what distinguishes policing from other parts of government is the authority and capacity to use violence. Police are who we call when we want the ability to put hands on people. Yeah. And so what we're saying when we mobilize policing is that we're choosing a response that's rooted in the implied threat of violence, if not the actualization of it. So that's that's what anchors police authority. It's not the law that anchors police authority. It's that capacity and willingness to use violence. Well, just so when you were saying, you know, violence workers um, and that expectation of, you know, laying hands, you call them when you want them to, you know, you want a certain outcome to arise. It just, it reminded me of a time when I was an officer. I was, well, not that three years is a long time, but more new um, in that three years. And it came to, I don't even remember if we arrested her or not, but there was concern over the fact that I hadn't been uh, heavy-handed enough and I got in trouble for it, like huge trouble for it. Even though I didn't see a threat, I didn't feel or believe that there needed to be any reason why I had to lay hands on this person to show her that I was boss. But yet I faced so much flack for that. It was ridiculous. It's like, well, no, like we can have conversations and talk to the person. It doesn't have to. But there was always this rush, this rush to, well, just move along. You're taking too much time. Get them in the car, like arrest them, do, you know, lay hands on them, which that's, I don't know, it's incongruent with who I am. Well, we see this all the time with the issue of contempt of cop, right? So non-criminal behavior, challenging police authority, which then elicits criminal excessive use of force by police. Right. So if you needed any other proof that policing is about order maintenance, not law enforcement, contempt of cop, which is a frequent dynamic, is plenty of evidence because police officers know that their ultimate authority rests on people's fear of the use of violence against them. And so if they don't actualize that violence when their authority is questioned, then the whole game is up. And so that's why officers all the time get into trouble for not using force quickly enough because every other officer understands that their authority will be diminished if there isn't constant and immediate fear of police violence in every interaction with the public. I remember one time I was... 
my staff sergeant had to get involved because I was fairly new on a couple years on and we had a, a call for mental health where the gentleman was, you know, out in the middle of the street thinking he's God, taking off his clothes. When we get there, he's now back in his apartment, but he's clearly mentally ill and needs help. So we're trying to apprehend him under the Mental Health Act, which we have here. And he gets violent, which is fine. We get him on the ground and get him handcuffed and then immediately over to paramedics. And I had a huge argument with my sergeant because he wanted this young man charged with assaulting a police officer. So I had to go in with my staff sergeant. I said, I'm not charging him with that. And we had this big debate. I said, there's no mens rea. He's not trying to hurt me. He doesn't even know what the hell's going on or what day it is. He thinks he's God. Like, well, he assaulted us. And I'm like, he doesn't even know what he's doing. And so why are you taking that personal? I'm not taking that personal. He's in, he's, he's now in the care of a psychiatrist. What is the point in giving him a criminal charge for what? And it was good. My staff sergeant agreed with me. And, but that sergeant pretty much didn't like me the rest of my career because. I stuck up for what I believed was the right thing to do. And it was opposite of what they normally do. So, of course, these, these, these assaulting a police officer charges are also routinely used whenever police use force against someone to provide legal cover to, to prevent the potential for litigation or other kinds of complaints. So this is a well-known you know, pattern in policing. Yes except for they don't lay assault police officer when a, a male police officer assaults a female police officer. Right. <laughs> Sexually or otherwise. That that doesn't ever get laid. It's, when it's that a workplace, uh, respectful workplace matter. Sexual yeah. assault becomes a respectful well, this workplace is, matter. This goes to write this much larger issue. We're told, my God, the reason we must have a massive infrastructure of policing is to protect women. But what they mean is something, you know, what this actually means is something completely different, right? So the vast majority of sexual assaults and other assaults on women are never even reported to the police, in part because of widespread distrust of policing in this arena. And women experience abuse and harm primarily in the home and the workplace, two arenas that police are very reluctant to go into, especially the workplace. So bosses don't get arrested for sexually harassing and assaulting their employees. And that almost never happens. That's considered a labor dispute. Police don't handle that. If the boss is stealing the wages of workers, that's a labor dispute. Even though the value of stolen wages in the States is about five times the value of all property crime. But we have almost no mechanism for enforcing the violation of stolen wages. When you say stolen wages, do you want to just explain Uh, what that looks like? Sure. What I mean by that is employers who fail to pay pay legally required overtime, fail to pay minimum wage, uh, steal people's tips, doctor people's timesheets, force people to sign in and out when they're you know, actually working, but not getting paid for the work, right? Underpaying the agreed wage. You know, this is a widespread problem, but that's not a policing problem. And yet police are like, no, no, we're here to protect you from thieves. 
No, they're only here to protect you from certain thieves, and they don't do a very good job at that. <laughs> Amen. Absolutely. Now, data and research into women in policing, we did talk about this, that they use less force. And I think, Susan, you have a specific article that you wanted to... Well, not necessarily. Like There is one that I was reviewing. It's a bit outdated now. But just in general, yeah, women tend to use less force and less uh, deadly force because they choose to... They prefer to take their time and use words over force, which is completely the opposite of what we kind of come to expect police to do as you were just talking about. So, And then they sometimes get in trouble for it. Yes, very much yeah. so. Yeah, so it's absolutely. Just, as I said, they're just, there are limits, I think, to how far we can extend this finding, right? So first of all, the differences are not on a massive scale. They are measurable and statistically significant, but the scale of the differences are not huge. And I just think there's not like this unlimited elasticity in those effects. In other words, if we just, if we doubled the number of female officers, would we cut the use of force in half? I don't actually think that's true. I think that the culture of the institution would intervene. It would say, you have to get with the program here. We're getting, you know, we're not solving problems the way we solve problems enough. And so you would see this kind of reversion back to. Well, I agree because you'll get ostracized if you don't do it the way they do it. And then your career is done or you're talked about or you're, you know, you don't want that person as your 78 or they don't show up as your backup. I think we have to be careful, right, in imagining that there is this possibility of harm free policing. And that if we just had the right people and the right training, that that we could professionally enforce the law and respond to calls without harms. And this is a mistake, I think, because the legal systems and the norms of order that we've asked police to enforce are filled with injustices. And when people are experiencing injustices, there will be resistance. Look at, look at the Eric Garner case, right? Eric Garner was, at worst, accused of selling individual cigarettes without proper taxation, which should have been a civil matter to begin with. Or a summary conviction or... Yeah, a traffic ticket type of violation, we call them in New York. And But instead, they sent uh, undercover officers, multiple units, three sergeants, you know, because the plan was to get rid of him. Now, I don't mean kill him. I don't think anyone set out to do anything like that, but was to get him off that sidewalk. And there were commands from on high to do that. And they went in there thinking that they would just have a custodial arrest like they have many times before and and put him into the system as a way of dissuading him from being out there. But this had happened to him a number of times. His life didn't get better. He was not presented with any new ways of surviving in the world. Conditions in the community did not improve. And so when they came, he said, this is unjust. I refuse to passively cooperate with this. He didn't hit anyone. He didn't attack anyone. He just put his hands up and said, no, I'm not cooperating. It's passive resistance. So there's no world in which 
the seven or eight police officers assembled there turn around and say, our bad, we'll see you tomorrow. No, it's control. No, they escalated the use of force until they killed him. Now, again, I don't, they didn't, they didn't intend or even want him to die. But when you do that enough times, some number of people are going to die in the process. Well, when the George Floyd homicide happened, I watched that entire trial. It was very difficult to watch because it's it's completely obvious that he was murdered. But having, it was difficult because I felt that way and I'm having these discussions at work and these cops are still, no, no, he wasn't murdered. And he, and I'm like, I can't, I can't, like how, I can't reason with your, you have no ability to reason. This doesn't make sense that you would, you're not seeing what's, what happened here. Well, they work in an institution that normalizes racialized violence. And found a way to justify it too, right? Yeah, yeah. that's the job. It's unfortunate, but that's the job. So if we don't want, if we don't want that kind of violence, we have to send someone other than police. The guy was accused, the accused of passing a fake twenty dollar bill. I know, I can't. I mean, even- why were the police even called in the first place? I used a counterfeit ten dollar bill in a restaurant unknowingly, and the proprietor just handed it back to me. Said this is no good, and I said, "Oh, I had no idea." And I gave him a different bill. No police were called. Right. That's because you have privilege. Yeah. As a white man in in the world, uh, and yeah. white women do as well. What are your thoughts on? Because I'm just trying to wrap my head around how many calls I've been to for fights and fights that are happening in a bar and. Um, domestic assaults and shootings and homicides. So at what point, you know, we we have to have the police for things like that, right? Or we need to have some 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 hands-on when it comes to certain things. Like at least in my mindset and I'd like to have you ch- have you ex- like change it for me if if you can. Yeah, well so first of all, right, those calls from what we've been able to tell, you know, are uh, roughly around 5% of police time is spent on those types of calls where there's some kind of active violence that has happened or is happening. And it is mostly past tense. We've got a fair number of studies that show that most calls to police about violence only occur after the perpetrator has left. So no matter how fast you respond, you cannot get there while it's in process because the call wasn't even made until the, the, the perpetrator has left. And so a lot of it's report taking. Now, that doesn't necessarily need to be done by armed police officers and patrol officers. I mean, that can be done by detectives and or it can be done by civilians. I mean, this is especially true for things like burglary reports and stolen car reports. It's mostly about insurance. They're not solving the burglaries. Most are not even investigated. It's about report taking so that people can make an insurance claim. And, you know, yes, they try to identify patterns and occasionally they catch someone. That's great, whatever. Okay, so, so we have to be concrete. Like what is the specific value that's being added by the police officer that couldn't be done in some other way. Now, obviously we need to have prevention in mind, but 
let's assume we've got good preventions. There will still be fights. There will still be acts of violence. You know, most fights are self-correcting in the sense that it's mutual combat and it will burn itself out and bystanders will intervene and blah, blah, blah. So we shouldn't imagine, oh, every time there's a fight, the only possible way that this can be resolved is when the police show up and start arresting people. First of all, police often don't make arrests in these situations where it's mutual combat. They separate the parties and send them on their way. And in fact, often that's already happened by the time the police arrive. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Domestic disputes. Now, we've just completely mishandled the way we deal with families in crisis. So let's, first of all, start thinking of it in those terms. These are families in crisis. And the mobilization of violence in those situations is never the first time that there's been a sign of crisis in that family. These are not one-offs. These are long-term patterns. But they're treated each as an individual one-off, generally speaking, in which the police response is to attempt to stop some immediate violence, but in a way that does nothing to resolve the underlying problem. So I'm sure you've both experienced repeat visits to the same location, right? Where even a prior arrest did not change the underlying problem. When families are in crisis, they need help. Most people, even victims of intimate partner violence, want to keep their families together, not break them up. But they need help to do that. They want their families to work So they need help in achieving that. They need income stability. They need counseling for everybody involved. They need someone they can call in a moment of crisis who is going to be a source of help, not of coercion. So we need to talk about creating family resource centers that are independent of the criminal legal system where people know they can go and talk about the problems they're having request help, and if necessary, have an escape plan, right? How many women in particular are trapped in these situations primarily because they don't have the financial means to live independently? Absolutely, yeah. You know, policing doesn't fix that. And they've been isolated too, right? Yeah, yeah, of course, they've been psychologically isolated and right. So I don't necessarily agree, though, that that the perpetrator shouldn't be arrested in those situations, only because I think domestic violence, and it's usually, it's obviously we know from statistics, it's more uh, male violence on women in those situations. Of course. So I've, I've just always felt as a police officer and just, and, and dealing uh, with those calls that it's my, it was part, like, that's what, I, like, I have to keep those children and that woman safe tonight, tomorrow, the next day. And I know here we have really done a lot with domestic violence and we now have a domestic violence investigation unit that just does that so when the officers go to the call it's it's an investigative unit now that comes in and 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 does it so they're getting the proper care they're getting the proper resources like you're talking about that's well, I would amazing. say they're getting some care and some resources whether or not it's really adequate I think is a slightly different question that would require more of a conversation 
there's an excellent resource here. Now it's, it's U.S. focus called Decriminalizing Domestic Violence, written by a law professor at the University of Maryland who has for decades run law clinics around domestic violence, basically like helping women get restraining orders and things like that. And she, so she spent her career working on this. And her view is that the turning of this problem over to the criminal legal system has been an unmitigated disaster. It has, because uh, oftentimes what happens is by the time court comes, the victim does not want to come to court. The victim has been talking with their partner. They want to get back with their partner or it's they're afraid to come to court. They don't, they haven't had any contact with the person in two years and that why would they want to come and and put themselves into further... Get their kids yes. taken away, have the partner end up arrested. So she says, look, we've got to go back to what was being explored in the 1970s before this was all professionalized and handed over to the criminal legal system. We have to look at community-based supports for women and children and families that are independent of police and courts. And we need to give them real resources. We need to have peer-to-peer counseling. We need to have safe places that people can go. We need to have real trauma counseling for victims and offenders and the children. And, you know, and we have to try to really break the cycle because this these are deeply embedded cycles of harming, self-harming behavior. And a couple of nights in jail doesn't change that. It, when, when we present people with this false choice of there's an out-of-control crisis and you can have police arrest someone or you can have nothing, then, of course, in some situations, police making arrests is the best, worst, is the, you know, best worst choice. Right. The whole point here is to provide people with an entirely different menu of opportunities, I agree with you that sitting in jail isn't going to help anything. I think it's more in in the moment of it happening um, because there's so many domestic homicides. Our homicides, the highest are for highest homicide rates, it is domestic abuse. Yes. So that's when we, you know, our system really kind of wanted to crack down on it. And whether, you know, I'm not saying they did it uh, in the best way possible. Like we're talking, some of these would have been much better systems. But it became um, our, you know, we have policies and procedures now where we must arrest, must, I'm sorry, shall, shall. Yeah, many places in the states do as well. And many places in the states do well. But one of the things we found is that then large numbers of women won't call for help because they don't want the guy arrested. They want help, but that's not the help they want. So they just quit calling. And so have you really, in the aggregate, actually helped women when you look at the overall picture? So we have to think about, even when policing is sort of done right, in quotation marks, is it really helping? Because we have to calculate the costs in. There are costs to these police interventions that are overlooked and ignored. So... So what do we do with the abusive men? What, how? Okay, so remember what I said. The abuse does not come from nowhere. Mm. Yes, this I recognize. It's yeah. patterned over time. So And cyclical, sometimes because you were abused as a child. That's right. Yes. It's not sometimes, almost all the time. Yeah. And 
What we do is we wait. We don't give any help until there's people stabbing each other, right? And bloodying each other, right? Or And then we say, oh, do you want us to arrest someone or do nothing? And then we say, well, of course, you better arrest someone right now because we've created this completely untenable situation and that seems like the only possible intervention. But the whole point is these things can be addressed before it gets to that point and the outcomes will be dramatically better and we won't be put into the position of this false bad choice. So what w- the first time a family is experiencing crisis, right? Where are the supports? Where are the concerted efforts to try to address the problem? Well, they're mostly non-existent. I th- I think too a lot of it has to do with education. So in a lot of cases Sometimes people don't even, they're not even aware that this cycle is starting or that there's an issue. They know something's not right, but they can't put their finger on it. And so I really think that education from a young age, age appropriate education throughout your, you know, primary school years and secondary is really, really important, not only in terms of recognizing cycles, but also teaching communication and relationship skills because we focus on math and science and all those those types of academia, academic, right? But the basic skills of how to interact with one another, how to maintain, like what what does a healthy relationship look like? I mean, I think that's all great, but we have to remember that education doesn't just happen in a formal classroom setting. Mm-hmm. But for those for those kids who come from a home where they're seeing this and the family is not interested in addressing it or doesn't know, then there, you know, it's a place to start. It's I, I don't disagree with that, but I think that you have to remember we're dealing increasingly with communities with lots of immigrants, people who did not go to school in, in these locations, right? Who come from other places, who feel isolated. And right now their option is like to call and request police, and they don't want to do that. So what if instead, let's just imagine for a second, what if instead there was a well-established community-based organization that offered a wide range of services to support families that was well-known in the neighborhood, that hired people from the community who maybe had the same immigrant experience, speak the same home language, that's not connected to police or courts. No one's asking about your immigration status, whether or not you're wanted on some outstanding traffic ticket or drug warrant, right? But it's here to try to solve your problems early on from the beginning so that when some woman says to her auntie, my husband is threatening me and the kids, the auntie says, well, do you know about the family center six blocks away? Because my niece works there. She speaks Bengali or she speaks Pashtun or she speaks Creole and you should go and talk to her. Maybe you can come up, she can give you some suggestions. Maybe we can get you on some housing supports, take some of the financial pressure off and let's try to get the whole family in to talk about what the family needs. Not in a punitive way or pointing the finger, but just saying it's a family as a group in crisis, not 
you're responsible, you're the bad guy, right? Let's bring everyone in and then we can work on it. And I agree that in some cases that might be all that's needed. I do think that it has to be a multi-pronged approach though. And for those perpetrators who are particularly violent and it is not necessarily about crisis, but it is about power and control, there needs to be different different mechanisms for dealing with them in place. Sure, but but again, if there's a if there's a family center that is trusted by people in the community that has real resources, then you you would see more women who would take the children and leave. I I agree that that absolutely would be necess- is necessary and is part of it. I just think in those really egregious cases where it's very likely that that man is going to end up killing that woman and woman and potentially children too. Um, that there does need to be more than just a community center. But of course, policing has not been very good at preventing that. No, and I'm not saying that that's police role. I'm just kind of thinking that it, there needs to be more. I have no answer to it. But. Yeah, well, so look, we can, just like we're creating increasingly these non-police mental health crisis response teams that are dealing with mental health, substance abuse, homelessness, et cetera, we could do the same thing around domestic violence, especially if it's integrated into a larger community-based infrastructure so that if there is more of a crisis situation, instead of armed police showing up, there's someone from the community that you have a history with. The likelihood of escalation of violence is greatly diminished in those circumstances. So anyway, you know, Will that solve every possible harm? No, but policing doesn't solve every possible harm either. Yeah. And I think in the aggregate, the outcomes would be much better. I'm trying to think of this like even like on a bigger picture. So how would this work, Alex? Like, Because what you're proposing is basically we would have to get rid of a lot of sections in the criminal code. Well, no, you wouldn't. You wouldn't because the way you begin the process is you start funding family support centers. You don't have to change anything in the criminal yeah, code. Yeah, you take money away from, because there's obviously police is getting, yeah, it needs to be reallocated. You take money away or you find new sources of income, you tax the rich, whatever, and you start developing a new kind of infrastructure to support women and families. Yeah. So, you know, this, these are the things, this, these details matter, right? And the more independent, community-based, and confidential it is, the more buy-in you're going to get from community members and the better the likelihood that you solve these problems for people. So just so I'm clear as we come to the end here, you're not suggesting that there is zero need for police? Well, we certainly don't start by asserting that tomorrow there should be no police. What we say is we have a massive infrastructure of policing in place, and what we want to do is to look at ways to begin dialing it back. And we want to use evidence, and we want to evaluate, and we want to be concrete, and we want to develop new infrastructures that allow us to produce better safety than we get from just policing. And what the end of that process looks like, I don't know. I mean, this is an open question, but there are certain logics at work here that call for us to continue to look for ways to reduce the scope and power of violence work to solve our problems. 
have you had the opportunity since you've written your book to speak to police agencies, politicians? Like, is this something that anyone's gripping onto besides, and when I say anybody, I know lots, we all are feeling what you're writing. I don't mean um, the logical ones of us. I'm talking about the ones that are in that system. Are, yeah. are they listening? Are they wanting to talk to you about this? So it's it's complicated. In the States, I have not spoken to many official like police agencies. I speak to individual officers. I'm on panels with police chiefs, whatever. So they, they know what I'm saying. But in a way, I'm not really talking to them. That's not the target audience for this. I'm trying to make a set of political changes, not technocratic changes to the institution of policing. Now, interestingly, outside the states, uh, much more interest among police. I've spoken at major police gatherings and and to police executives, you know, uh, in other places uh, who are trying to figure this out and and et cetera. In terms of politicians, I talk to politicians on a daily basis. Last week, I met with Chuck Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader for the U.S. Senate, to talk about spending on community-based violence reduction initiatives. So this is a live issue. Every day, we're hearing about another city getting rid of its school police department uh, or canceling its contract with the city police department. Yeah, another we canceled city ours a couple of years ago. Yeah, creating a crisis response team, investing in new anti-violence initiatives. This is happening every day here. It's very exciting. And that's what I do all day is, is meet with people and advise them about how to move forward on this in very concrete, programmatic ways. Awesome. I really like that it focuses on a strategy moving forward as opposed to just what are the problems. So trying to look at the future and what the future of policing and what the future of community-based initiatives um, to help create that public safety and that safety net, that safety support net for the communities um, that doesn't necessarily involve policing efforts. Yeah. That's the thing. I'm not in the, you know, all police are bad people business. I've spent my career working with police officers all over the world. I know that they're not all bad people. You know, I, I, I talk to them all the time. It, they're folks caught often in an untenable situation. And if anything, I'm trying to provide some relief for them. Yeah, which I can tell you I appreciate. <laughs> I like a lot of your ideas. A lot Thank of you. them. Wow, we, we've had our own hard time trying to get politicians to even address that policing needs to look different um, here in Canada. So we're, we're trying to work on that now, Susan. And <laughs> Very, very slow process. Yeah. And we're recognizing or realizing from talking with some people that we have to go to the federal level first before we can change anything in our municipal police services. So, yeah, well, there's a lot of vested interest in using police to address our social problems. And we should not be naive about that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking to us today. Is there yes. anything you would like our audience to know before we sign off? Uh, folks can follow me on Twitter at A Vitali. 
and uh, you know the new addition of the end of policing with a lot of discussion about violence and prevention strategies is uh, going to be out later in December. Great. Thank you so much for this conversation. Amazing. It was really enlightening and refreshing for something because I rack my brain sometimes. Like, what? What can we do? What can we do? What can we do? Like, you know, so thank you. Thank you so much. You're most welcome. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Take care. Thanks for joining us today. Be sure to subscribe to the Behind Blue Doors podcast to catch the latest episodes. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And check out our website at www.behindbluedoors.org. Take care and until next time.